From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. In Australia, the not-for-profit sector employs over a million people, and it's growing. Much of this growth is driven by NGOs accepting enormous government grants to deliver essential services to our most vulnerable. But these grants come with strict contractual obligations, which effectively prevent organisations from holding government agencies to account. Today, contributor to The Monthly, Russell Marks, on how charities are becoming complicit in their own silencing. It's Tuesday, November 2. Russell, could you start by telling me a bit about why you wanted to investigate what's happening in Australia's not-for-profit sector? Yeah, sure. Um, So I've been working on and off in the sector for more than a decade now, and there seem to be two main ways that the not-for-profit sector gets talked about in Australia. So one narrative comes directly from the sector's executive leadership, which regularly tells a story, and it's, it's certainly not an untrue story, about how hostile governments are and how they're constantly under threat of funding cuts and attempts to silence them and to prevent them from advocating for change. There's another narrative which seems to come from the political right in Australia, which tends to see the not-for-profit sector as kind of made up of self-interested rent-seekers. But my experience and the experience of a lot of people that I've spoken to over the years, and particularly for this story, suggests that there's another story which rarely becomes part of the public conversation. Frontline staff regularly talk among themselves about significant levels of dysfunction in their own organisations and about how often they effectively silence themselves by agreeing to funding contracts which very much compromise the organisation's ability to advocate on behalf of their voiceless clients. Mm, Okay. And can you tell me a bit more about the work that you did in the sector and what you saw firsthand about the way that organisations are making compromises that impact the people that they're supposed to represent? Sure. So I've worked for um, four not-for-profit legal services in different parts of Australia. All of them have grown significantly in size and scope, which sounds great. It, It means that they're helping more and more people. But in reality, a lot of it is about or seems to be about growth for its own sake, often with adverse consequences for clients. So one legal service that I worked for, for instance, provided legal advice to people who don't speak English as a first language. That's a worthy cause. But the advice was all given in 45-minute clinics during which the client would explain their legal problem and then we'd need to go and research and provide verbal advice all within the 45 minutes. We never wrote anything down for the clients and it was often weeks before the client's court dates. I doubted after a little while whether any of the advice that we ever provided was very useful to the clients, but as lawyers, we we felt run off our feet. Now, this seems largely a problem with what's called the service agreement. And essentially, it's a contract between a service provider, so a non-government organisation on the one hand, and a government or a government department on the other. The contract which has organisations agreeing to do certain things in exchange for funding dollars. And so suddenly, instead of 
doing the kind of advocacy work that's so fundamentally important to a functioning civil society, not-for-profit organisations are frequently signing up to service agreements, which effectively mean that they're doing the government's bidding. And is this something that's happening across the board? Is it a a common story among different not-for-profit agencies and charities? You could probably fill a book with with all the stories. Everyone, everyone who I've ever spoken to, everyone who I've ever met, every place I've ever worked at seems to have a variation of this this kind of story, either a a small or a or a big story, quite often a big story. And often people are telling me they can't believe that it hasn't hit the news yet. So often people end up in um a state of little mini despair where they they go around in circles trying to figure out what to do about a particular problem and then they eventually leave and then discover the same problem somewhere else. Mm. And so this problem that you're describing, this situation where organisations end up acting in the government's interests, not in the interests of their clients, to what extent is all of this caused by these agreements that charities have entered into with government agencies? Is that the thing that's tying their hands? Yeah, and it's a good question and it's hard to know the extent of the problem. One big reason behind this problem appears to be that 50% of the income for the non-government sector comes from government departments. It's possible that many, and I should stress not all, organisations are essentially compromising their ability to advocate for change by accepting this money. There's been a long-standing fear among the NGO sector that if they speak out, they perceive that they're at risk of losing their contracts. And it's not a fantasy. Most of us had worked in statutory child protection for at least over four years before we came to Nauru. So it was very frustrating for myself and and I think for, for all that we could not do and make real recommendations even though we were highly trained. And the big story here, the big example, is Save the Children's experience. Save the Children signed a $36 million contract with the Gillard government to provide services to asylum seekers. But then the Abbott government wanted Save the Children to agree to what it called a communication protocol, which would have gagged it from speaking out about conditions on the island and also wanted to halve its funding. The government must have confidence that service providers act with professionalism in accordance with their contractual obligations. They are employed to do a job, not to be political activists. Save the Children refuse those demands. It's documented that self-harm has occurred, including uh, children sewing their lips together. This has not occurred as a result of any coaching or fabrication. The reason this has occurred is because uh, kids are in detention. Then its CEO fronted a press conference in defence of his staff who had been falsely accused of coaching asylum seekers to fabricate claims of abuse. Are you worried you'll lose the contract? Look, obviously these issues insert a degree of tension into the relationship, but Save the Children uh, has operated in many parts of the world in difficult circumstances amidst conflict. Ultimately, Save the Children's contract was not renewed. We'll be back in a moment.
For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Russell, we're talking about the role of charities and not-for-profits in Australia. It seems like their fundamental role, which is advocating for clients, is under threat. In some cases, like with Save the Children, speaking out can lead to organisations losing their contract with government agencies. So it seems like the process of even engaging in these contracts with governments is the problem. So when did this begin? When did government agencies begin tendering out to not-for-profits in this way? So it's hard to know for sure, but competitive tendering as an idea really came out of the competition reforms of the 1990s, which was also a time when government departments really began to adopt the principles of what's now referred to as the new public management, the the idea that government departments should be steering the boat instead of rowing it. We will invest a further $60 million over four years in the non-government organisations treatment grants program. We'll provide another... The Howard government was very big on this idea, very much attracted to the idea, particularly when it came to the work of non-government providers. The foundation of the delivery of all of our aspirations in these important social welfare and human services area is a strong and growing economy. If you don't start with that, you can't ever get to the top of the hill. But really, all governments now have drunk the Kool-Aid. Concerns were raised during the 1990s when competitive tendering began to be applied to the the non-government or charity sector. Concerns about governments contracting out risk, contracting out lines of accountability. Those lines were being blurred. Some non-government organisations were promising to deliver services at well below what they should safely cost. All of these problems have been known for a very long time, but nonetheless, more than two decades later, competitive tendering is now rife. These organisations are competing with each other in a space where the consequences are real for a lot of people, people experiencing homelessness, people experiencing domestic violence, um, people experiencing poverty, children experiencing abuse. The consequences of a lot of the service agreements that organisations are signing with governments mean that the people who need help from these services are essentially being betrayed by them. Mm. So, Russell, when you think about the way that this is all panning out, where do you think that culpability lies? Is it with the people who are at the, the top of these charities, the CEOs, the executive managers, the board members, because surely they're the ones that would sign these agreements and 
have a say in the direction that these organisations are heading. So we've arrived at a, a, a kind of problem where there's a lot of recognition on the front line that these problems are endemic, but often it seems to the people on the front line that a, a lot of these problems aren't being discussed higher up the organisations. One worker on the front line told me that they don't know how their executive leaders would even know about many of the problems and concerns that they experience at the front lines. There's a team leader and a program manager and a, an area manager and various other levels of management before you get to the executive levels of the organisation. So unless organisations are structuring themselves to ensure that there are really good flows of information coming from the front lines and are ensuring that people who work on the front lines are not afraid to report bad things that are going on or to report concerns about conflicts of interest or, or any other concerns that they may have, you kind of get a, a situation where a, a not-for-profit organisation starts to look a lot like their for-profit cousins. Mm. And does it seem to you, Russell, that there is much hope of things changing? How do people who work in these organisations speak about the prospect of change? I guess it feels on the front lines that if people were to speak in a way out of turn on some of these issues, they would be whistleblowers. And we know that there's a lot of cost to whistleblowing. Often I've spoken to people who have raised particular concerns with their immediate managers. Sometimes those concerns are being addressed. At other times, they're being told, look, we're going to prioritise our service agreement with the government rather than address these concerns about, about a conflict of interest which are affecting our clients. People are worried about their jobs, but people are also worried if they speak out that there may be consequences for the organisation as a whole. They're worried about their clients who are getting support. They're no doubt getting some help from these organisations and often quite a lot of it. If the worst case happened and the organisation was defunded, for instance, as a result of someone speaking out and criticising their organisation, I imagine that would be a very difficult thing to live with. Russell, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ruby. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive the Saturday paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. Also in the news today... So I had a very direct discussion with Prime Minister Morrison about this issue. I do respect sovereign choices, but you have to respect uh, allies and partners, and it was not the case with this deal. And I think this is detrimental to the reputation of your country and your family. The French President Emmanuel Macron has accused the Prime Minister Scott Morrison of lying to him about the $90 billion submarine deal with France that Australia terminated last month. Do you think he lied to you? 
I don't think I know. In response to Macron's comments made at the G20 summit in Rome, Morrison denied that he lied to the French president. He's also accused you. He says he doesn't think you lied to him. He knows you lied to him. I don't agree with that. And at the summit, G20 leaders endorsed a global corporate tax deal that will see a minimum 15% tax on corporations, including internet giants like Google, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft and Apple. The new tax rule will come into effect in 2023. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.